Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask, where everyone has something they can teach you. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. In this episode, we are going to explore why we do what we do when it comes to money. As a CPA for the past 30 years, wait, let me say 25 because that makes me sound younger. I have seen it all when it comes to money and emotions. And if you think I'm talking about my clients, I'm not. I'm talking about myself. My relationship with money has been, and sometimes still is, an emotional roller coaster. Maybe that's something you're also familiar with. Good news. You and I are not the only ones. Our next guest is going to share their money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges as well. Buckle your seatbelt and enjoy the ride. Our next guest is Nick Espinoza, an expert in cybersecurity and network infrastructure. Nick founded Windy City Networks at age 19 and was acquired by BSSI2, where he is now their CIO. In 2015, Nick launched Security Fanatics, which is a cybersecurity cyber warfare outfit dedicated to designing custom cyber defense strategies for medium to enterprise corporations. Nick is also a nationally recognized speaker, member of the Forbes Technology Council, and a regular columnist for Forbes. He is also the award-winning co-author of a best-selling book, Easy Prey, and host of a nationally syndicated radio show, The Deep Dive. He's also the official spokesperson for the COVID-19 Cyber Threat Coalition. Nick is known as an industry thought leader and is sought after for his advice on the future of technology and how it will impact everyday businesses and consumers. Nick, I'm super excited to have you here. I think I said everything right, yeah. but I think if it all boils down to is, it sounds like you might be a professional hacker. You can call me that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's how most of us start very early before we're professional anything, just trying to see if we can break into stuff. So Exactly. Well, so that leads me to the fact that you started your first business at 19. Did you do that in lieu of college? Did you decide to go to college? And was it the hacking that sort of said, hey, how did we get here? My 90-second life story, if you will. Basically, when I was five years old, my dad brought home our very first computer. And I was just so fascinated by this thing. And he went to work after setting it up the next day. And I took it apart piece by piece, screw by screw, because I wanted to figure out how it worked. And when he got home and he got done whooping me, I put it back together and it turned on. And at that point, to his credit, he's like, okay, he's got something here. Like, let's let him keep going. So he fostered that in me. I built my first computer at seven. Wow. I started programming in languages by the time I was nine. I had about 10 or 12 languages that I could do. I started getting very early certifications from like Novell and other places that were big at the time. And at 14, I basically broke into my first system, which was, I think, the natural progression. Because when you get a computer and you know everything about it, you want to learn how they can talk to each other. And once you know how they talk to each other, you want to know how you can capture it, break it, defend it, corrupt it, all these kinds of things. I wasn't doing that to ruin anybody's day, unlike the hackers of today that are criminals and want to rip you off. I wasn't trying to ruin anybody's day. I just want to see if I could do it. And so that kind of started that road. And then I basically got a job basically running tech support for a company here in the Chicagoland area. And I did that from about 16 or 17 years old to about 19. And I said, you know what? I started actually in college for computer science. And I said, you know, I get enough of this at work. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I switched to history major. And then I founded my first company by 19 years old, Windy City Networks, and grew that for about 15 years before being acquired. So 
here we are. That is so awesome. And are you an only child? I am, which is probably <laughs> to my advantage. <laughs> I didn't have to fight for computer time with a sibling. Yeah, no, exactly. And I love that your dad encouraged you after he beat you, of course. But well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to got to learn the lesson here. But yeah, that he actually saw that. But when you were growing up, what about other things besides supporting you in computers? Did he talk about money with you? Did you understand like a budget or was nothing spoken about with money? What was that like? Yeah. So my dad eventually got his financial planner certification, if that is any indication. Although, <laughs> interestingly enough, he worked in IT. He worked in technology. So I'm second generation nerd is what I like to call myself, okay. <laughs> you know, in that sense. But yeah, and it was very interesting because he was a very meticulous person. He was essentially my first CFO, if you will. Right. He would come with the spreadsheets and tell me to the penny, you know, good, bad, and ugly and all of that. And I honestly, and maybe it's the father-son relationship, but I just didn't want to hear it. <laughs> I was very much like my mom in the sense that, you know, oh, no, like, we'll figure it out. It's fine. I'm just winging it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so a lot of that didn't seep in. He was the one that recommended, rightfully so, that you know, when I'm in college, I take business classes and all of that. I happen to be on the 11-year plan, literally for college, just because I was working <laughs> full time and, right. you know, doing everything else. But yeah, yeah. So I did get interesting financial advice. I don't think I really took it, especially in my 20s. You know, I mean, think about it, you know, you're 19, you're 20 years old, you're making way more money than anybody around you, making more than my dad was making, you know, when he was <laughs> in his business. I mean, you're going to do stupid things. Yeah. And so I went through my stupid phase era. And I'm also an extrovert. So that doesn't help in any way. Right. So but yeah, no, I did get solid financial advice. I just can't say I took it. <laughs> you just didn't take it. Right. Now I do. <laughs> and when did that turn around? Like, what was the, was it getting married? Was it just realizing, oh my God, I just blew through a billion dollars? Like, what was that moment that you said, I got to do this crap different? Yeah, yeah. So honestly, the realization was a relationship had ended. I'd had a girlfriend for about a year and we were getting serious and all that. And she's like, no, like you spend all your time at work. Like this isn't going to work. And what I would do at the time is I would throw a relationship would end and I had lost multiple relationships because I'm more focused on growing a business than I am really anything else at that point in, in my life. And so by virtue of that, you know, it really made me become introspective in a way that I just hadn't been before. And I think that really started to change for me in the sense that I think by my late 20s, early 30s, I was really starting to recognize, you know, you can't go out and party every night, you know what I mean? Or right. you don't have to have every ridiculous thing on the planet. And that really, I think, started to hone and focus that, hey, I need a work-life balance. And by virtue of that, that brings savings, that brings relationships, that brings things that you normally think about. Yeah. For just a second, because as we go on here, trust is going to play an important factor. <laughs> Even for those not listening, don't know that. So I watched a bit of your TED talk and you talk about like trust sucks. And in fact, you actually trick the audience into trusting you. And so, which was brilliant, brilliantly played, but you talk about trust sucks. So like, mm. why should we trust you? Yeah. How do we know when to trust? Right. Well, I think the TED talk you saw of mine was my second one. I've done four actually. Watch them, people. And my first one was actually called Trust Sucks. And I think what we need to understand is that we need trust in our lives. 
So don't get me wrong when I have a title called trust sucks or law number three that you're talking about of the five laws of cybersecurity is humans trust even when they shouldn't, right? That's right. Like we need trust in our lives. We cannot have a society without trust. And if you can look at without getting political, you can see the political divide, how one side doesn't trust the other and how that's contributing to what is seems like a breakdown of society. So we need trust. We need to be able to trust our spouses, our kids to some extent, (laughs) you know, our parents, all these kinds of things. But where we have to draw the line is basically creating a filter of distrust when we're online, when we're doing things online, meaning the way we approach, let's say, an open and honest conversation with a loved one is not the same way you'd approach a conversation with somebody that just connected you on Facebook and says, hey, I'm your long lost friend. And we have multiple aspects of trust. So for example, there are two core sides of trust. There's effective trust and there's cognitive trust. And cognitive trust is the logic, it's the experience, it's the knowledge. And so as a perfect example, wireless infrastructure around you, like you go to your local coffee shop and you connect to wireless, oftentimes it's very vulnerable to people like me. I'm able to spoof it, attack it, crack it, which means I can get to your device, all these kinds of things. But think about it from the cognitive trust standpoint. You've walked into that coffee shop 99 times, your logic tells you it's been safe, it's been secure, I know this place, I've had nothing but positive experiences. And so on time 100, you connect. Now, your effective trust is essentially that nostalgia, that emotional trust that you have to someone or something. So you walk in the door and everybody's like, Norm, and there's your favorite barista and she knows your order and there's your comfy seat. You have this warmth, this security that you are feeling and it's a false sense of security in the sense that one aspect of what you're doing is using infrastructure that doesn't belong to you. You don't know who you're sharing it with. And so when we're walking into these coffee shops, we can have that norm kind of experience, but understand it starts and stops, let's say, with that interaction. We are entering a trust relationship when we're walking into a coffee shop, a supermarket, whatever it is, and handing over a credit card that they're going to basically take that in a secure manner. We're trusting that their wireless is going to be secure, and oftentimes it's not. So that's essentially the premise here. We trust, and it gets us into trouble online constantly. People joke with me that technology and I just always have issues. Like even the other day I was going on a Zoom call and I couldn't get the freaking video to work and there's 10 people waiting for me and the CEO goes, no, it's Bob. It'll take five minutes. It always does, right? Right. So I'm wondering about us that we want to go online and do our banking or we want to trust when we hand our credit card to the server that when they come back, they didn't process it through some cyber internet thing that just stole all of our information. Right. How do we know the difference? Because there is so much stuff online and yet constantly people are like, Bob, don't use the hotel internet. And I don't know. Right. Well, it's good advice not to use the hotel internet or the airport internet <laughs> or the airplane internet or the Starbucks internet, you know, right. Whatever internet that is not directly you that you control, that's a good one. But I'll be honest, I do my banking online. I have no problem with it. I have my mobile phone, which has a lot of security and protections on it. I can enable things like multi-factor authentication so that it's not just a single username and password that gets me into my money. And I think that's where a lot of people really fall down. Understand that when you're looking at a bank or any kind of financial institution that you do business with, there are two sides to the security coin. One is the security that they are giving on the back end, meaning how is the bank or the financial institution not getting themselves hacked? Yeah. Because if I can get into the back end of the bank, I might be able to access not just your account, but everybody's account. 
And that is something that terrifies the bejesus out of them because that's reputation damaging. That's putting you out of business. That's the FTC and the SEC coming down on you like the fist of an angry God. So that's the one side of it. And financial institutions tend to have pretty solid, above average to excellent cybersecurity because they fall under a lot of compliance laws. But they also recognize this is where the money is. So people want to rob us. Right. I mean, that's this is the dawn of civilization. I mentioned that in the talk, too. You know, yeah, that the very time that somebody created the very first bank on the planet, there was a person that's like, oh, that's where the money is. Oh, I'm going to rob that. <laughs> I'm going to take that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just centralized everything for me. This is great. And so you have those people out there. They're always going to be out there. And the banks basically hire armies of people like me to ensure that the back end of their security is good. Now, that's the one side. The other side is what you control, your shared responsibility with that financial institution that you have a good password. Your password isn't password, right? And usually they have complexity requirements that you're enabling good security controls, that you're not connecting to a machine that is heavily infected and then trying to get into your bank and they're stealing your credentials and all these kinds of things. This is why we need to maintain a certain level of vigilance and distrust when it comes to our technology so that when we are banking online, you know, it's more secure. And we can also do other things too. So for example, I don't use credit cards. I have a debit card. And what I do is I have two bank accounts within the credit union that I actually use. One of it has the pool of money. The other one is actually attached to the card. So I have no more than maybe 50 bucks to 100 bucks on that card. And so if it's ever stolen, you're not going to get anything. The only difference would be like if I'm going out to like a nice dinner, I might move a few hundred dollars or if I'm going to make a purchase immediately. Let's say buy a new TV, I might move a couple grand and then it, it gets moved out of the bank account immediately. But if you were to hit that card right now, I mean, I can live without 50 to 100 bucks as the fraud protection kicks in and gives it back to me in six months. Some people can't. So by virtue of that, it's one of those things that if you don't think about, you can make a debit card vastly more secure than a credit card. Right. Because I don't have the ability to just cut off funds. I have a $10,000 limit. Well, only 500 is allowed until I unlock it. Right. And that's not a feature that you typically see. So there are some tips and tactics that you can use yourself to actually make sure that you're working in a secure manner. Also making sure like your phone's encrypted. So if your phone's ever lost or stolen, they can't get access to the app. Don't save the password to your bank in the phone or the computer. That way, anybody from your kid to an attacker can't just log in. It's those kinds of things. We just have to be considerate of these things. And a lot of people just trust technology. They're oblivious of it. Or they go the opposite route and say, you know what? I'm straight up Amish. I'll take my horse and buggy to the bank and deposit it in dollars. Exactly. (laughs) Everybody's different, but you don't have to be. And just coming from somebody that's under attack on a regular basis, given my job, I bank online. So what does that tell you? There you go. You know, my cousin used to have like 42 symbols and every day it changed to a different. I'm like, that was a full-time job trying to keep up with his password. Right. People don't understand how to make a good password. And I see that all the time when we're walking into a corporation and audit and the IT department is probably like, we have the best password policy. <laughs> and it's like 47 characters, 9x27-34. You know what happens when we walk around? We see the passwords on post-it notes on the monitor Mm -hmm. or sitting under the keyboard. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking, we just pop over the keyboard. Oh, there's every password that you've got for the month. So understand you don't have to go that crazy, but length in passwords is your best friend. And so the longer your password is, the harder it is to crack. And that's one of those things. So one of my key passwords that I have that is actually the encryption on my laptop is about 30 characters long or so. It's a phrase from my childhood. I will never forget unless I go senile. 
And in my house, we had English, Spanish, Hungarian, and German spoken. So you can figure that one out, you know? So right. it's one of those things. Good luck. <laughs> right, right. It's just one of those things where I'm going to know it and nobody else is. And I don't have to have the nine, seven X, whatever that I'll never remember. So there you go. All right. So what I'm also hearing is that I need to take all the pieces of paper out that I flipped on the back of all my employees' monitors so I could get into their computers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, we look for those kinds of things. I wasn't the only one that thought of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. In drawers, under desks. Oh, my God. We had one that basically took a stack of post-it notes, pulled up half of it, wrote the password down, and then put the stack back on top. And we could see the crease. We're like, (laughs) there's the path. You know, people try different things. But yeah, no, if it's written down and it's eyeballs, we run what's called a shoulder surfing attack on you. Oh, that's hilarious. Meaning we're surfing on your shoulder, watching what you're doing. So it's hilarious. So how concerned should we be when Target or Chase comes out and says, we accidentally gave out your information. We have the best security, but we're going to have to issue you a new debit card or we're going to like thousands of thousands of thousands of thousands of people get those notices. A lot. Millions. Millions. Hundreds of millions. It's the problem. I mean, so think about it this way. You know, we're both sitting here in America. You know, both of us are U.S. citizens, I presume, which means for now, (laughs) (laughs) we'll see. Right. I have a social security number. You have a social security number. We're all in the same boat, thanks to Equifax in 2017, getting us hit and getting everything dumped out. Understand that there are some things that are intrinsically yours. Let's say that social security number, which for the record, you can't change. It's not something you can't go to them and say, I've been the victim of an identity theft or I'm under attack for this. You can ask the guy that put his LifeLock, the LifeLock CEO. He plastered his actual social security number on every billboard in the United States. And from what I learned, he basically had 80,000 attacks on his credit in the first year. And he went to, from what I understand, he went to the Social Security Administration and said, please change my Social Security number. And they're like, no, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You were stupid. (laughs) Right. My point being is that some things about you are immutable. If you lose a credit card, you have fraud protection, you're going to get a new card, those kinds of things. You can go back and you can dispute claims and get your money back. There is a process for that, even though it's a pain, but some of your information remains the same. The upside, though, is that while we have this, we are entering into a trust relationship with the targets of the world when we're walking in there and handing over our credit card. The upside to this, though, is that a lot of our information changes and ages over time, which makes it less valuable to attackers, meaning you might get divorced, you might get married, you know, you might change an address, these kinds of things happen. And so the further away we are from a data breach, it tends to be the less valuable that our information is minus those immutable things. So that is one of the plus sides, one of the upsides, if you will, of that. But yeah, no, it's a problem. And again, this comes into that trust methodology. It's also why, like I said, I use a debit card. I go to Target, I'm going to use a debit card. I'm not going to use anything else because I know I can control the purchases. And if I'm ripped off, I'm not losing my money. I'm losing 50 bucks, 100 bucks, and I'll get it back, you know? Yeah. And I've heard that before about using the debit card versus a credit card because of that reason. They can only take so much. Right. And I love that secondary account that you feed the money to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't keep your whole paycheck on the debit card. <laughs> you know, move 90% of that paycheck out, leave what you need. And then by virtue of that, you're not going to be scrambling to like pay your mortgage next month if you get hit. Yeah. Now, in the TED talk that I saw, which was obviously the second one, and so the numbers may have changed because it's a couple of years, but at that time, 7.6 billion people on the planet. And about 3.6 billion go online. Yeah, around four now. Okay. So is the other 4 billion, are they all babies? 
or are they just people that are not trusting? Like, what's the other group of people that aren't on the internet? It's overwhelmingly the extremely poor. A lot of countries don't have infrastructure or they have very minimal infrastructure that only caters, let's say, to center urban areas where only the wealthy can afford it. And so if you're looking at large swaths of Asia, large swaths of Africa, where there are heavy populations, there is little infrastructure in some of those places. That's also why we have deep concerns with hacking as well, because groups in economically depressed areas, like the Russian mafia, for example, are looking for kids with aptitude. And those kids can't get big jobs. They'll make more money breaking in and stealing money from fat, rich Americans than they will anything else. Wow. Which is essentially their training platform. <laughs> Come rip them off. They don't mind, you know. And so we see that constantly. But the vast majority of them are not hermits by any which way of the world. It's that they're economically disadvantaged. And by virtue of that, having a lack of access to the internet gives them a lack of opportunity for more advanced education, for communication, for potential jobs outside of their current geography. It, most people don't go beyond 50 miles from where they're born right. in the world. Historically, we have in the United States the privilege of being blanketed by a massive amount of infrastructure. And while we have economically depressed areas, you know, statistically, they're vastly smaller than, you know, than access. I mean, I can drive 20 minutes outside of Chicago, hit cornfields, and I can still get internet. Right. You know, and that's something that, you know, people just really don't think about. But no, a lot of it is coming from areas where they just simply don't have they don't have the money, yeah, the economics to do it. We are definitely very spoiled and entitled and thinking it's everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So it makes me think of two things. One, I've been to Nepal a couple of times and it was about a 10 year span in between. The first time I was there, you were lucky if you could go to an internet cafe and maybe make a connection. Mm -hmm. And it might've even still been that, you know, the old right. school, I don't remember. But when I went there the last time, it was an amazing infrastructure. But the Western... The Europeans, the Americans, all these people have this brilliant infrastructure. And I'm sure it wasn't for the locals. It was just because it was really inconvenient mm. for all the privileged folks to not have access. Right. Well, and if you think about it, developing nations, which is essentially, you know, one of those things that I've been starting to work on with the United Nations on developing cyber defense strategies for developing nations, there are developing nations that are tourist hotspots, meaning they don't have a lot of infrastructure for their people. But believe me, when the massive hotels and resorts show up, they are going to pay for that because, you know, when the Americans show up or the Europeans show up or whoever shows up with money, they want Internet and they want good Internet. And so, yeah, I think that's one of those things that if you're looking at, let's say, the capitalist side of this, you know, a rising tide really does raise all boats. The only problem is, is that the government, because they're so focused on tourism dollars, oftentimes, or they're focused on those urban centers that are actually generating you know, money for their economy, that's where they're focusing the infrastructure out. But you can go like as well connected and surveilled as China is, there are huge parts of China where they basically don't have the internet, or if they do, it's only for the party, you know, that is basically watching everybody else. So we see it worldwide. It's not an ununique thing. And we have pockets here in the United States where people simply can't get good bandwidth or decent internet at all. You know, and imagine if you're in that depressed area and you're like, you know what, I'm done with you know, living rurally, I'd like to apply for jobs, you know, in my local urban area, and you can't get to the internet. How much harder is that for you? You're going to walk in with paper resumes to 50 companies at this point, it just doesn't happen, right? So we have to understand that, you know, as we are continuing to expand that infrastructure, we're trying to bring access to everybody in the world. That's one of the reasons why Elon Musk's Starlink and Amazon and their other competitor as well are very promising, 
because they can hit locations without having to run data cable, you know, at a very expensive rate, you know, around the globe. They can literally bring the internet to the rest of the planet. Well, there's two questions there. One, we were out camping and somebody looked up in the sky and said, oh my God, look, there's like 60 stars in a row just going across the sky. And we were all freaking out and they're like, it's an asteroid. It's a falling star. No, it was Elon Musk shooting satellites. It was a very fascinating thing. But I also thought, oh my God, if we were being invaded by aliens right now, right? (laughs) Right. We were like defenseless. Like it was an amazing thing to see, but it was also, I felt very defenseless. Yeah. Well, from an alien invasion, I mean, we have space shuttles and a space station that holds like 10 people. I don't know if it's Star Wars or Star Trek here, you know, but like (laughs) if they show up with an armada, we're pretty much screwed. (laughs) I, for one, welcome our new alien overlords at that point, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, but we're, we're continuing to do that. And when you're looking at the amount of satellites that Musk and Bezos and cannot remember the third company, he's also out of California, though. They want to put up a combined something like sixty to seventy thousand low orbit satellites to blanket yeah. basically the world with internet. Obviously, focusing on statistically the places where they'll make the money the most, like the United States, Europe, etc. Yeah. But they're bringing it to everybody, and so yeah, it's kind of amazing to me. <laughs> it really is. So here's the double edged sword for me, though, right? If we're now doing all my banking online, I'm doing my investments online, I'm doing my trades, I'm moving money, and now somebody decides to massively shut out all of us access or the power goes out, right? And now all my money's through my ATM or all my money's through my laptop. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden I'm broke because power's out for six weeks Mm -hmm. or somebody hacked in and shut down all of the major banks. Right. I'm completely trusting that the internet and the government are going to take care of me. And that may not be true. Right. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm surprised you're not heavily invested in canned foods and shotguns as well. You know, I mean, (laughs) just, you know, given the way we're going, the point is you're right. And that is a deep concern. We have 16 core critical infrastructure verticals here in the United States. And if you recall recently, President Biden months ago, earlier this year, was on stage with Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, basically saying, you can't hit these things. You can't colonial pipeline us again. And that is a deep concern. We have some very seriously inadequate controls around a lot of our critical infrastructure. One of the biggest challenges we have right now is actually securing our water districts. We have over 50,000 water districts in the United States. Most of them don't even know what assets they're running. They can't even identify all their computer assets, let alone secure them and defend them. The federal government has this problem as well. We also know that our nuclear power plants have been probed consistently by basically state-sponsored intelligence agencies and attackers to see where we would be vulnerable. Think about it this way. From a cyber warfare standpoint, if we were to get into a hot war with any country that, let's say, stood a chance of really doing damage to us, the first thing they're going to want to do is make us deaf and blind. They're going to want to cut the power. They're going to want to cut communications as fast as they can. Russia actually did this in 2014 in Ukraine when they literally shut down a power plant and then They hit the phone system in the area. And so 80,000 people lost power. They couldn't pick up phones. They couldn't make a call and all of that. So that's a huge thing. Now, a lot of governments are responding to that by essentially taking total control of the internet, basically running dry runs to see if the internet gets cut off from the world, meaning we have our own intranet just in the country. Can we still function like the internet without being able to connect outside? 
Russia's run this test, China's run this test, Iran's run this test as well. And so we're seeing countries start to take control of that. Now, there might be a logical reason to, let's say, shut down the internet in an area, let's say, that's full of panic. In the same way that, as we were talking about earlier, you know, we just had the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict that came in. You know, they've called the National Guard in the state of Wisconsin. They are bracing for impact on this. And no matter what that verdict was, guilty or not guilty, they were bracing for impact. And so the police will deploy things that will actually suppress the internet in the area so that coordination is much more difficult to happen. They have devices known as stingrays that will kill cell phone coverage. That is done specifically so that communication can come in and out for coordination. Or what happens if there's a national panic and everybody decides to make a run on the bank? You kind of want to cut the internet off so that people can't hit the ATMs, can't drain the banks to stabilize the economy temporarily. So there may be justifications in the national emergency to actually you know, take those kinds of actions or localized emergencies in that case. But overall, to your point, yeah, I mean, part of having a diversified portfolio is to understand that you can withstand an extended outage. Now, most of the time, these are highly redundant, they're running massive data centers in Microsoft and Amazon and all of this. And so your data is actually replicated multiple places. So you're sitting in California, for example, let's say you're in LA and LA just happens to get nuked, and you survive, the data center in LA has been replicating to San Francisco and Dallas and Chicago and New York, like all the time, constantly. So understand that we have peace of mind in the redundancy of the infrastructure that we've created, even though we have these weak points that we can attack. My other final question as we jump into some other stuff, but what is our other hope? And I was going to say our other hope, Obi-Wan Kenobi, because I feel like <laughs> you're the wise one here. And it can feel overwhelming, right? It's like, sure. is there any hope? Do we live just a paranoid life? Like, how do we go forward from here? Yeah. So I speak a lot. I get on stage a lot. And my message, while there are terrifying things out there, is basically like, look, I love technology. I embrace technology. I use every technology. I have every stupid gadget that you can possibly think of. I have a ring that's a fitness band. I've actually seen a toaster that you can connect to wireless so you can print things on bread. Like, I love technology. But I know that anything that I'm doing with my technology has to be married to cybersecurity. It has to be married to awareness and good choices. And as long as you are approaching technology, I don't care if it's answering an email from your grandkids or your spouse or whatever, you are looking at it in a correct skeptical eye until you validate it's actually legitimate. That's all we're talking about here. So love technology, embrace technology, just understand it has to be married with cybersecurity. And I think that's just the message that has to be out there in the world. We're not going Amish. We're not going back. And we're going to have new and innovative products out there, which brings, you know, opportunity for exploitation. But it's our job. It's our responsibility as we're using these things to use them in the safest way manner. And that means that we have to have awareness that becomes awareness of basically the infrastructure around you. All right. So I'm going to trade in my buggy and my horse. I just got a newest upgrade on that, but hmm. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go. Horse 2.0? Horse 2.0. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there you go. We're at the Fast Five, which is brought to you by Cube Money, a cash envelope system made easy, real-time financial awareness without time, hassle of tracking expenses and carrying cash. I have five hopefully fun questions, top of mind, and I'm just going to throw these out here and let's see where we go. Lay it on me. What was the first financially related online scam you ever encountered? The first financially related online scam I ever encountered was a client calling me that basically had a bank account wiped out. Wow. Does that count? It does. Were you able to help them recover it? 
we were able to help him secure himself, but it's usually up to the bank <laughs> to basically say, can we pull the money back? Does it fall under FDIC insurance? But that was my first one. I mean, and, and like everybody, you know, I've had illegal card use, you know, my debit card, somebody stole the number some way, like probably at a gas pump or something. And by virtue of that, you know, they tried to charge $2,500 to my card and they didn't go anywhere because I had like 50 bucks on it. Yeah, that's why I do this. <laughs> that's why you do it. Yeah. Uh, have you ever gotten in your own way of your financial goals in the past? Oh, my God. That describes my 20s. <laughs> and yes, absolutely. Absolutely, I have. You're making good money. And like I said, I wasn't listening to the sage advice of those that were smarter than me at the time. Lesson learned. But yeah, absolutely, I have. So you focus on cybersecurity. What is your biggest insecurity around money that you're experiencing like now? Well, I mean, just sitting right now in the pandemic, you know, with the great resignation, just as a business owner, it's difficult to find good people, which means it's difficult to grow, it's difficult to expand. And so by virtue of that, you know, am I affecting my top and bottom line by, let's say, not spending more to hire when people aren't worth it, but they're needed. So I would say that that's one of those things right now that we're really focused on. And it's a concern of ours, because we're going to keep growing. Cybersecurity is not going away. You know, and so we just have to keep finding those people. And that is a concern. That's hard because I'm frugal. And I hate spending money if it's not money well spent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I mean, when I'm on stage and like somebody asks me, says, hey, I've got a kid in college. He or she go into cybersecurity. And I said, look, even if they suck, they will make six figures right out of the gate. They'll be out of your basement. You know, I mean, that's just the nature of it. And so we will hire people and not just me, any cybersecurity outfit will hire inexperienced people for a lot just under the expectation that you're going to spend even more money to train them and hopefully retain them. So yeah, it's a huge thing. Yeah, it's crazy. Have you ever regifted a gift? Only on white elephants. <laughs> if you know what a white elephant <laughs> I do, thing is. I do. Yeah. All right. Yes, we actually have a set of Star Wars mugs, kid you not, <laughs> sitting in the basement. And every year it goes back into circulation and one of my friends is going to get that thing. And I might get it back one year, but yes, yeah, we do that constantly. That's funny. <laughs> Have you ever dined and dashed when you were like in your 20s and money was tight? Did you ever dine and dash? No, actually, because I'm trying to think if I would have done that, it would have been in my teenage years. Yeah. And no, I can't. I don't think I ever did. And I think it's in part the my dad was a pretty religious guy. Yeah. And I think that guy, just the morality and the ethics of that would not allow me to do that couldn't do it. I have to sleep at night, you know? I would have looked so guilty. Like, I've never done that. Like, I've had cousins, everybody, let's do this. I'm like, they will find me. There, you know, yeah. there could be 10 billion people. They will find me, so. Yeah, well, and if you think about it, I mean, my day job, literally a good chunk of my day job is to lie to people because <laughs> I got to break into your life, right? You're hiring me to break into your company. I'm going to have to lie to you, but I got to look myself in the mirror at night. So yeah, <laughs> there are lines I don't want to cross for that. Absolutely, know? absolutely. Well, we're at our M&M moment, our money and motivation piece. And I'm wondering if you have a piece of financial wealth wisdom or a practical tip that you've found around money that's helped you. I mean, you gave that tip about having the two accounts mm -hmm. because that's an awesome one, but you have another one. <laughs> yeah. Rob a bank, right? No. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, honestly, I think that if I'm thinking money advice and I'm thinking this through, one of the things that I think has benefited me well is to understand essentially trending, meaning what's trending on Google? Like, what are we looking at in terms of, let's say, adoption by people and then investing in that? 
So for example, there are some things that never go out of style. We will always generate waste. As we have an aging population, we will be generating even more medical waste. So investing in medical waste companies makes a lot of sense. We're always going to have technology. We're always going to have innovation, which means we're always going to have cybercrime. We're always going to have hackers. Investing in cybersecurity, not to plug my industry, tends to be a very safe bet. We're not going anywhere, and we're 500,000 bodies short, meaning we are coming up with new and innovative ways like artificial intelligence to make our jobs easier to basically offset the bodies that we need. Easy investment. So as you're looking at these kinds of things, I'm looking typically society-wide to see, okay, where are the gaps? What are things that will never go away? And by virtue of that, those are things. Transportation is another one. You know, you can think about it. Healthcare is another one. These are safe bets in my mind because you might not make a billion dollars overnight, but you will make money in these over time. And that's what I learned from the Vanguard guy, the founder of Vanguard, cannot remember his name, like Steve Vanguard or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know. We'll I, call him Steve Vanguard. Yeah. Right. He basically <laughs> said, never check your, just if you're putting money into an investment account and you're laying hand, just don't check it. Don't check it. Don't check it. Cause that will freak you out. You'll see it go up, you'll go down. But over time you do nothing but go up. Yeah. And I thought that was really good advice too. No, that's so true. I mean, we talk about that a lot. The market is driven by emotions and I can tell clients, hold, hold. And I've lost all this money. No, you didn't lose it until you sell it. Now you've lost it. Yep, you lost it. There we go, gone, right? right? But it is that you've got to put it in and not look at it and not rely on your emotions because you can't always trust them. (laughs) Right, exactly. And nobody wants to see money like you see it. Oh my God, I'm losing money every day that I'm not doing something. Well, not necessarily. Look at Bitcoin, right? Look at cryptocurrencies. I mean, they've gone nothing but up for the most part, despite all of the issues and the woes and the problems and the theft and everything else. But it tends to still be a hot commodity right now, even though it's very hard to cash in. Yeah. You know, so here we are. Here we are. Well, Nick, I so appreciate you coming on. You know, what I really love is that even though you started building computers at five years old and your father saw something there and helped nurture that, you did have your bad years where you were not necessarily being responsible, not necessarily doing it right, but then you had that epiphany moment or self-reflection that said, eh, it is nice to have everything in the world, but maybe I don't need everything in the world and maybe there are other priorities that I need to focus on. And so, you know, I don't really hear any like regrets or any of like, oh, shaming, where I know a lot of people will beat themselves up for past instead of just going, eh, it's part of my history, right? Yes. I have a motto in business that basically is, I can't fix what I can't see. Right. One of the best things any one of my employees can come to me and say is, Nick, you're an idiot and here's why. The caveat to that is, you actually have to tell me why I'm being an idiot. Right. What am I not seeing? And I think that's just so important. And so, you know, I am who I am. I'm a product of my choices, good, bad, and ugly. And by virtue of that, you have to forgive yourself. You have to reconcile things. You have to move on. But understand that if you're doing those things, hopefully you're learning a lesson (laughs) not to repeat the mistakes of the past, you know, and that's that's everybody. If I could give my 19-year-old self advice, I would probably say don't change a damn thing. Right. Because I think I'm doing pretty good here, you know, 20 plus years later, and I don't want to tamper with that, even though there was a lot of hardship, Yeah, you know. I love that. I can't fix what I can't see. Where can people find you online? Where can people get your book? Where can people listen to you? You've got a great show. Where's all that? Where can we find it? Yeah, so at this point, I believe my book's about five years old. (laughs) That's all right. It's still good info. (laughs) Yeah, so you can get that on Amazon. It's called Easy Prey. 
But yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Nick AESP or feel free to connect to me on LinkedIn. Obviously, mention that you saw me here with Bob. And you can also find me on Facebook at slash Nick Espinoza and LinkedIn slash Nick Espinoza. And feel free to connect. I always love the followers. Nick, this has just been an awesome conversation. I hope we've enlightened some people about online banking and security and cybersecurity because I think it's so relevant. And I think it also keeps people in so much fear that everything's going to be taken away from them. So I love that there's this positivity of even though there's some crazy stuff out there, the world can be a rough place as long as you're mindful and understanding and marriage the security with the online gadgetry and technology that life's still good. It's still worth being here. (laughs) Absolutely. I completely agree. And thank you for having me. I had a really good time. Thanks again. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Did you learn something new about your relationship to money today? Maybe you have a friend who has some financial blocks or beliefs that are holding them back. Please share this podcast so they too can get off the roller coaster ride of financial fears and journey towards financial freedom. To learn how to have a healthy relationship with money, visit themoneynerve.com. That's nerve, not nerd. We'll be back next week with another perspective on money and the emotions that bind us. Bye.